how can we simultaneously grow economies and green economies? That is the fundamental challenge, and that is what we are working on. Welcome back, everybody. Rich Baker, founder of Collective Responsibility, here today with another episode of the Sustainable Ambassador Podcast. In this episode, I am extremely honored to be joined by Richard Devania, Chief Economist of Sustainable Development Practice at the World Bank. He's held several positions in the World Bank, and he's helped the World Bank become an acknowledged thought leader on matters related to environment, water, and economy. Richard, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. And as a starting point, it'd be great if you could introduce yourself and a little bit about the work that you're doing over there at the World Bank. Thank you so much, Rich. It's an honor and it's a pleasure to be here. So my name is Richard Demania, as you said. I joined the World Bank 10 years or so, probably a little bit more than that ago. So I've always tried to use economics as a tool to A, understand better the environmental challenges that the world confronts, and B, try to seek solutions for it. And really what my job in the World Bank has been, and increasingly so as more and more of the world understand this, is how can we simultaneously grow economies and green economies? That is the fundamental challenge, and that is what we are working on. As an example, we've just completed a report on environmentally harmful subsidies called detox development. And that mm. looks at the magnitude of subsidies across the world that are doing harm. The other aspect of the job is, of course, to help all of our teams thinking through very, very difficult issues. And of course, trying to build a cohort of good economists that mm. can keep addressing these kinds of issues that I would suggest to you are on the forefront of not only the intellectual challenge, but also the policy challenge that the world confronts today. These are huge topics, but are there a few that really resonate with you that you believe are the more or the most important? Before I answer that question for it to make sense, let's look at how the world has made progress. In 1980, roughly 40% of the world was living in extreme poverty. Mm -hmm. Today, despite COVID, under 10%. About 50 years ago, 70% of the world was functionally illiterate. Mm. Today, that number is way under 20%. 20%. We've made huge economic progress, but that has come at a tremendous price on the environment. Biodiversity, climate change, water quality, water quantity, air quality. So what that tells us is that we've had progress, but that's come at the cost of the environment. I kind of look at it a little bit like the economic development that we've had has been incredibly beneficial. That wasn't the problem. The problem was the subsidies and the externalities that were allowed to occur through this process. We didn't pay for the environmental cost and we subsidized things like coal. And my feeling is now we're kind of unable to support those externalities, unable to support those subsidies. And I'm curious what your thought is in that respect. I think there is recognition that we can't go on on a business as usual. Clearly, business has a sense of responsibility and a role. But then governments, I think, also need to make sure that when when a business wants to do the right thing, they're not economically penalized. At the moment, not everywhere, but in many many cases, if I try to do the right thing by the environment, costs might actually go up and someone that's doing the wrong thing might be able to sell the same product at a cheaper price. The role of government is to make sure that we have a level playing field. What's the role of economics as either a lens to understand where the gaps exist and where the trend is going to go, as well as a tool for actually bringing balance? So we can tell you, for example, how many people actually die because of air pollution or water pollution. We can tell you what the cost on the economy is of those deaths. Mm. We can show you how productivity declines on 
heavily polluted days. The other aspect of it is, well, so what do you do about it? You know, very often, in fact, almost all the time, there's no free lunch. Things usually cost if I'm going to do things differently. So they might cost me in the short run. As for example, I invest in doing something cleaner. The hope is in the long run, it'll pay off. And some countries and some companies are extraordinarily good at finding that gap mm. and working out that there is actually a niche, more than a niche over there, that there is scope to make money. So I mm. think the next trends are really to make a lot of money and a, out of being green and doing things better. Moving away from green and growing to blue. When you look at water, what's the role of economics to understand where the problems are or where the investment needs to go? Like, how do you, how do you try to really understand the issues of water as an economist? We live in a world where the amount of water that we have is finite. And what we have is declining water supply at the same time because of population growth and greater affluence, the demand for water is increasing. And yet we're in an odd sort of world where you can go to some of the driest parts of the world and you will observe that rice, cotton and sugarcane are grown in a desert and exported mm -hmm. to other parts of the world. So what we've done across the world is we've grossly mismanaged water. And in fact, the mismanagement is often at its worst where water is scarce because obviously the pressure is there to give the water for free or to do all sorts of things you wouldn't really want to do. And we do that, of course, with the best of intentions. Tying two things together, you have economic development, which, you know, using China, India, many other countries, they're going through this hyper growth, I would argue, in some part due to cheap water. How do we balance this? Because short term, we need to develop the economy, we need to maintain political stability, we need to maintain wealth, but we know that long term, we're going to face this issue. You know, like, how do you approach or advise on that, that imbalance. So increasingly, our role is to show that it is not just a long-term problem, it's a short-term problem. A, what is the cost? B, probably more challenging is to say, so what is the way of actually growing equally faster or even faster by being green? So the fundamental challenge is, can we grow by enhancing the environment rather than by destroying and wrecking the environment? But the challenge before us is to do it now, because in a sense, there is no real trade-off if you really look at the true costs between what the economy needs today and what the environment needs. Is it inevitable that you lose the ability to have cheap water? How does that restructure an economy? It's very tempting to kick the problem down the road, right? Kick the can down the road and hope that someone else deals with it. And that's what we've done historically. Most fundamentally, that's only going to change, if I, I believe, at scale if we get the right kinds of regulations. And very often that will mean that prices go up. But I think more often than not, that will also mean that we do things differently. There's a lot of inefficiency in the system. Let's go back to the water example. When water is free, we use water very inefficiently. Mm -hmm. So for example, there will be overhead irrigation in places that are very dry. And with overhead irrigation, middle of a desert, you know, you're throwing all this water up, but 60% is lost to evaporation. Hey, if the water is free, why not, all right? But that doesn't mean there isn't a cost. And sometimes that cost is on someone today. Sometimes that cost is into the future. How do you tell the story of economics and sustainability? What's compelling to them? What's actionable? Is it data? Is it stories of impending doom? Like, how have you found through your 
your work and your career that you can really grab somebody by the throat and say, this is important. This is what we're seeing. Let's take some action now. So it depends who your audience is. If your audience is a central bank or a ministry of finance, you really have to lead the conversation with numbers and relate those numbers back to the economy because that's what's of primary concern to a central bank and a ministry of finance or a minister of finance. And certainly my approach has always been never to exaggerate, but always to try to be as true to the data and the information that we have. And it's bad enough that I don't need to exaggerate to point out that these are the number of lives that's lost. This is what it means in terms of the context of your country. And for most people, when you have that conversation, that reasonable conversation, it doesn't take too long to convince them. Let's take an example. When you see those brown particles in the air, it's called particulate matter, PM. You inhale those. It's like inhaling very, very fine dust. That goes into your lungs. If mm. it goes into your lungs, from there, it has to go into your bloodstream. If it goes into your bloodstream, it has to affect your heart. So what do we see where we have high levels of air pollution? We see a spike in asthma and breathing problems. We also see a spike in terms of heart failure and a variety of cardiac problems that ensue in those places. All this is very easy to understand. Well, it's interesting. Through this conversation, you've sounded almost like a biodiversity expert, a public health expert, an air quality expert, less so an economist in many ways. So what economics tells you is what policies are going to work. So for example, if I want to know What's the best way to reduce pollution in my city? A knee-jerk reaction for most people would be, you know, just mm. tighten the regulation, just get rid of all of the polluting cars, and, you know, that would be the end of the problem. What economics might tell you is that you could do it that way, but it might be a terribly expensive way to do it. Mm -hmm. And indeed, if we have very weak governance, all it might do is unleash rent-seeking. And mm. what economics might tell you is not everywhere, but in many, many circumstances, it might well be that I create a market. So what I say is that I want to reduce pollution by say 30%. And I put a cap to reduce pollution by 30%. And then I say anyone that can reduce pollution by 30% can trade their cap. Mm. We can find better ways of doing what we are trying to actually do rather than simply having a ham-fisted approach of saying thou shalt not. And the great thing about economics is that it can actually tell you how you not only lessen the burden, but you can actually very often create growth with the right sorts of policies. Now, if mm. I sound like a biodiversity expert or if I sound like an air pollution expert. It's simply because I believe that I should not be working on biodiversity or air pollution or water unless I deeply understand the science of it. In the, in the terminology of an economist, the science gives me the production function. And then I put the economics onto that and work out, well, given that production function, how will people respond? How will firms respond if I tax them rather than having a regulation? Will a regulation in country X simply unleash massive corruption? That, I think, is the beauty of economics. It tells us that. What brought you into economics and sustainability to begin with? You've got a real passion for it. Where did it come from? Where did it start for you? I've always had a passion for, um, for the environment. And uh, I, I started off as an academic, so it was the intellectual aspects of economics that, that drew me into economics. It's a challenging mm. subject. It's a fascinating subject. It's wide ranging. And then it was quite simple, really, to marry the two interests together. And I've been very fortunate in terms of my employer to have a job that sits 
right in the center of what it is that we're trying to do. How do you view the power or the, the opportunity of this position to affect change? My primary job is through the power of ideas and showing how you can do projects, how you can do things and get the same outcome, hopefully in ways that are much, much more efficient. As an example, we did a report that showed you can feed 10 billion people by using less land than we do today, by using less water than we do today, simply by doing two things, using what we are using today more efficiently mm -hmm. and putting the right thing in the right place. So not growing rice in the middle of a desert, mm -hmm. not trying to grow, cultivate lettuce or vegetables or fruit where the soil is inadequate, doing it where the soil is adequate and growing trees where you should be growing trees. And we mm -hmm. came up with maps at a really, really low grid, about 50 by 50 kilometer grid to show where farms should be, where forests should be, how much water should be used if you want to achieve that level of efficiency. And does that mean you get into which food has the least water footprint and therefore is most economical and which one requires or you get the most gains from, say, mechanization versus, say, you know, small shareholder farms? Do you get that granular Absol in your analysis? Absolutely. And of course, now that you're talking about those sorts of things, trade, it makes an awful lot of sense for yeah. some places to grow some things and sell them to other places rather than us right. all growing everything. It doesn't mean that you don't worry about food security. Of course you do. It's a balancing act. But food mm. security doesn't mean that I need to grow everything. How future leaning do you get in your own work and versus how much is it very, you know, what are we seeing today and what are the potentials over time? So you have to do a little bit of both. But my, my own personal view is that the here and now is often more compelling. And in many ways, what you're seeing in the language of eco economists, and tell me if this makes no sense, is that the world hadn't had perhaps not priced those future risks adequately, mm. which is why we're in the situation that we are in. So yes, we do need to have a sensible insurance policy for the mm -hmm. future as we go forward. We also need to worry about the here and now. Otherwise, politicians will have very little incentive to take you take you seriously. And are we getting better at pricing that because we understand the systems more? Or is that the tools like AI make it a little bit easier? We're getting much, much better at this. Mm -hmm. And the more we understand, the better we get. But we've learned how to predict because of all of the tools that you're talking about. And we've learned how to protect as well. And we know whether risks actually are. What are the gaps or what are the things that you worry about the most right now? The biggest worries would be biodiversity loss, which doesn't get anything like the attention that it deserves, not just perhaps for ethical reasons, but also because we know that biodiversity has cascading impacts. And as an economist, I have to be honest and say we've not really done the economics on that well enough. That's actually what keeps me awake at night would be those sorts of irreversible changes and changes in systems. Sure, humanity will survive. But how will it survive? You know, is, is that a price worth paying or could we do better? What are your fuel sources to get you through this doom and gloom? I'm curious, like, do you frame it as an, oh, my God, I need to get to back to work at the office. It's 3 a.m. I can't sleep. Or are you do you find ways to emotionally kind of set that aside and just look at the systems, look at the data? You've certainly got to be emotional about your work and passionate about your work. But at the same time, you have to be very objective about your work. Because if you allow that to cloud your judgment, you won't be giving very good advice. And you yourself won't reach a very good, uh, uh, the, the sound and the right conclusions. Mm. So, you know, I think I think it makes sense to try to be objective, try to be very thorough in what you do, and try to communicate with as much clarity as you are able to. And that that's really what keeps me going. But I, I do think that these are such compelling, important, interesting topics that mm. um, there's no difficulty in getting, getting up in the morning 
learning and actually working on these issues. It's a great segue into the next section, which is about your work as a professional at the World Bank. When you made the shift from academics into the World Bank, what was it that you were seeking? What, what was compelling about the World Bank? Why did you seek that opportunity to begin with? There are huge advantages in being an academic. It allows you to pursue topics of your choosing. It allows you to become an expert at a level that you probably couldn't in any other field. The great attraction of the World Bank is you're on the front lines of policy. You're talking to policymakers. You're learning how to communicate. You're on the front lines of just how difficult these issues are relative to the textbook answers. Does that mean that you have to develop new tools all the time? Are you redeploying the academic tools that you have? Like, what are the things that you've picked up along the way and what's the most valuable tools that you bring to the office every day? When I started 15 years ago, economics was in a different place from where it is today. Mm -hmm. Economics was more a mathematical science where we wrote models. And of course, models will show you what you hypothesize. Now, economics is much more data-driven and we have wonderful environmental data, satellite data, AI, we have machine learning, and we can do a lot more. And so I find the tools of academia to be immensely interesting and immensely useful. And every day of my life, I try to learn something new um, to keep up because things are moving at an enormous rate and there's no way I can keep up, but I try. So if you were to think about what makes for a successful economist that's focused on sustainability or environmental protection, what are some of the traits or tools or mindsets that you think are really critical to being effective at that position? Have a lot of humility, but to be technically sound. You need a lot of humility because there is so much that we don't know, especially in the field of environment. And we know even less about how the economy and how people respond to that and how they will respond to policies that you have to fix it. I would also argue the second attribute is integrity, which mm -hmm. I think ties in with the humility, because if if you have integrity with your work and humility and you're thorough, I think that brings credibility and power to your work that perhaps may not exist otherwise. Mm. And then finally, you need the skill to communicate. So those would be what I would what I would suggest might be the, the key attribute. But if you're giving career advice to someone who is 25 years old, they see economics as the, the tool to affect change. What career advice would you give to someone that's around that age just trying to work out what their first step should be or how they should view their career going forward. If they want a career that relies on analytical work, perhaps the optimal strategy might be a postdoc, somewhere where you can really hone your skills and learn how things are actually done. Um, yeah. But having that a proper apprenticeship for two years in a, in a, in a you know, working with someone, I think one might make a vast difference. And then you just launch.